I almost don't want to talk to you until it's over. <laughs> you need to enjoy this and take it in as much as possible. <laughs> it's, you know, old guys like me talking about what you should know or what you should. No, 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 I think it's really cool. I think it's this is your journey. You've got a better handle on it than our journey. <laughs> and enjoy it. Sure, tell not about my journey. Yeah, you're in the hunt. How cool is that? Welcome to the other three years, a show for anyone who has an Olympic-sized dream they want to turn into a reality. Hi, and welcome to this week's episode of The Other Three Years. This week on the podcast, I have a super fun and special episode. I'm sharing a conversation I had with an Olympic champion from the 1988 Olympics in the two-man kayak, flatwater kayaking, Norman Bellingham. So Norman actually lives in Saratoga with his wife. And so I got to speak with him in person in the Brightsided studio a few weeks ago before I left town on my training trip. And I was honestly fangirling so hard and trying to keep it cool because Norman is the real deal. And he's just awesome. And it was really fun, but he actually started in whitewater kayaking and then switched to flatwater kayaking. And he competed on three Olympic teams and actually went to row at Harvard, which is a totally different sport, rowing and kayaking in between his second and third Olympic teams. So he's just a super impressive guy. And it was so cool to speak to him being where I am in my own athletic journey and getting to ask how he achieved the success he had and just hear about his life and his own career. So it was really awesome experience speaking with him and learning from him. And I feel lucky that the conversation was recorded, not only because that means everyone listening gets to hear it, but also because I can listen to it again whenever I want. I hope everyone really enjoys it. But before we get into that, here's an update on what's currently going on in my training. So I actually, on Sunday left Gainesville, Georgia, where I was for two weeks with my Orion teammates and drove about eight hours to Sarasota, Florida. So I just started um, another two-week block where I'll be training in Sarasota. So it was a pretty easy drive getting up here, down here. Florida's down. And it's actually been super windy in Sarasota since I've been here. So we erged yesterday, which was Monday, and today's Tuesday, and we did get out on the water today. So that's exciting. And it's great to be here. There's a bunch of different people here, and I'm happy to be training with a new group, but I miss my old group also. So it's, you know, just different, but it is it is nice to, I guess mentally, it was like a nice two weeks in Georgia and know I could accomplish that. And then... Now we have these two weeks in Sarasota and next week is kind of an erg testing week. I mean, we'll still be rowing, but there are some erg tests that we'll be doing. So just kind of trying to keep the train rolling and having good workouts to build, you know, some on the water confidence, but also some on the erg confidence. I'm, I'm actually staying with my mom's cousin in uh, Sarasota and they have two dogs, which is very exciting. It's really the dream, if you ask me. So I've been getting to spend a lot of quality dog time. They'll both like, they're so cute. They'll lay together and snuggle or they'll snuggle with me if I want them to, but they just cuddle with each other and it's so cute. So it's also been really fun that I get to stay with my mom's cousin, Barbie, and her husband, Todd, because it's, you know, sort of like a host family, but also like family, family. So it's just a comfortable scenario and 
I'm happy that I can feel, you know, as at home here as possible. Other things to highlight, I just got my like whoop year end review, which everyone should have a whoop. And actually, oh, plug, you can get a whoop and get your first month free with my code, which I'm like 99% sure is Christy number one. But apparently I spent over 900 hours exercising this year, which seems like a lot, but I don't actually know. But I was in the top 1% of whoop users in my strain. But I guess that makes sense because I am like an elite athlete. So exciting. I love my whoop. Whoop doesn't even sponsor the podcast, but I love my whoop so much. So I'm, I'm a big fan. Yeah. So that's really all that's going on. I'm in Florida now. I'm a Florida woman for the next couple of weeks and then it'll be Christmas and then I'll be a Florida woman again. So uh, if anyone has any Sarasota recommendations, let me know. But now it's time for my conversation with Norman. So I really hope everyone likes it and have a great time listening. So Norm, I'm so excited to have you on the podcast and to meet you in person. It's very exciting. I thought that obviously you've had like such a successful and like full athletic career, which we will 100% get to. But I think just to give some like context to who you are and like your background, if you can just share with me and with everyone listening, like a little bit about growing up and how you got involved in sports in the first place, both like kayaking and I guess just sports maybe? Sure. I grew up for the first 12 years or so, 14 years of my life, mostly overseas. My father was in the foreign service. And so we were in Asia. But when we were in Asia, my father in Nepal got a Navy surplus raft sent over. And so we did some of the very first whitewater rafting in Nepal. (laughs) And that got me hooked on that sport of of whitewater. I wanted to be a mountaineer growing up. Yeah. Heroes like Edmund Hillary and people like that. We came back to the States, to the D.C. area, and I went to a summer camp where there was some uh, whitewater canoeing going on. Actually, I found a summer camp that had <laughs> And two, two of the sons of the owners of the camp had uh, national-level experience in whitewater slalom. One won a, a bronze medal at the 1972 games, and he was a hero to all of us, Jamie McEwen. So at that stage, I wanted to be an Olympic athlete. So it really kicked in around when I was 12 years old, and I wanted to be like Jamie. I think we all did. He was a good-looking guy, incredibly humble. Um, he had gone to Yale, where he was a the captain of the wrestling team, <laughs> and uh, he married Sandra Boynton, who we just thought was a beautiful blonde, but she was far more successful than him. She <laughs> Boynton Hallmark cards. I don't know if you if you are familiar with like Hippo Bird Day to you, the, you know. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so she's done those, and she's been remarkably successful, and she's mm-hmm. incredibly creative. So the pair of them together were really, you know, quite the couple, and we thought this was a path that's worth following. So by the age of 14, I was introduced to a, the U.S. slalom coach, a fellow by the name of Bill Endicott, who had been a rower at Harvard, and he had rowed under Harry Parker, and uh, he was training the U.S. Whitewater Slalom team to become very successful. They were suddenly taking on the East Europeans and the Austrians and the Germans and a sport where the Americans hadn't really done that well prior to, up, you know, to that period. Um, there had been a group out of Dartmouth that had done well a little bit before, but now all of a sudden they were vying for world titles. And I saw these people paddling at a level that was incredible. It was beautiful. It was like ballet on the water. 
and I wanted to be part of it. And this fellow Endicott said, you know, I was good enough at age 14, 15 to, to train with them. It was a small group, and uh, that became my sport. And by the time I was 17, I was on the national team, and I did well enough. But that sport was not in the Olympics anymore. It was been on the 72 program and was taken off and didn't get back on until the 92 program. Okay. So in the interim years, there was a sport of flat water sprint. Uh, so it started at the Berlin Games, and you race over a course back then, a 500 meters or a 1,000 meters. Now they have 200 meters as well, but you have singles, doubles, and fours. So it's somewhat analogous to rowing, and they use the same course as rowers. Mm-hmm. And it was a sport in which East Europeans uh, were dominating, and the West wasn't that good. But I shifted sports, I guess, in January, February of 1984, and it just clicked for some reason. It's a pretty significant shift from a slalom boat to a sprint. Yeah. Um, but... The 84 trials were in April, and I managed to make the team. Wow. So back then, it was a full team that was sent. So I made the team as a youngster and stroked the four, and uh, we had a poor race. Uh, we were good enough, I think, in a boycott-depleted field to have come maybe sixth or seventh, but we didn't even make the semifinals. Uh, so that was pretty devastating. Yeah. And I didn't want to give the sport away, and I didn't want to go to college yet. So I just said to myself, I'm going to train full-time because I'm not— a good enough athlete, nor am I smart enough to do both at a high level. So I said, I'm going to take four or five years off and train for the 88 games. And long story short, I ended up going down to New Zealand. They were the first Western nation to really challenge the East Europeans. And they let me train with them. And they taught me how to uh, strategize races. They taught me how to train. They taught me technique. They They were remarkably welcoming. And I progressed pretty quickly with them. And so by 1986, I was sixth in the singles at Worlds, 87, I was fourth. Uh, but I was winning some internationals at that, that time and become one of the top 500-meter guys. And at the, during this time, we had another top kayaker, he's better than me, Greg Barton, who's somewhat legendary in our sport. Greg um, was my roommate at the 84 Games, and we were always pretty much put together as roommates. But Greg really didn't want to race with anybody else. He was a top singles guy, and... We had some clashes because all of a sudden I was coming up and I was a singles guy. And eventually he said, we should probably try a doubles. And we got in and at first it didn't really work. And then it really clicked. Anyway, 88. Greg won the singles in the thousand meters. And then we both won the, the doubles thousand. So that's where the gold medal uh, was. And then I had to sort out after that about school. And I was accepted at Brown. But then my coach who had gone to Harvard found out that I was going to Brown and contacted me and contacted <laughs> Harry and sorted out that maybe I should go to Harvard. <laughs> and I was excited to do that. And so I ended up at Harvard and it was wonderful to row for Harry. I studied economics. Um, and as the 92 games approached, I really wanted to go race singles. And that was, had been my big event. And uh, so I decided to take a year off and I, I trained for the 92 games and everything was going great. I was pretty much undefeated going into those, those, uh, those games, but I had a, it was a photo finish. So there was five of us and I was fourth. That's the way it works out sometimes. But the fellow that I'd, I'd set up a training group in Newport Beach, and the fellow that I trained with in his training program I wrote, won the gold medal, a fellow from Finland, Mikko Kolomainen. So wow. in a roundabout way, it was similar to what had um, happened to me four years prior, because when we won a gold in the doubles, the New Zealanders came second. <laughs> so that was, in some respects, pretty gratifying. Yeah. Then I had to sort out what to do, finished my undergraduate work, wrote a thesis on financial incentives as it related to athletic performance. My thesis advisor has gone on since to win the Nobel Prize. Wow. He he was really junior professor at the time. (laughs) 
I always I feel like I should mention that because I'm kind of excited for him. <laughs> he was pretty tough on me and made me do fairly advanced level mathematics because he was an econometrician. But it got me excited about how I could write papers and do work that would contribute to the improvements of institutions. And the Olympic Committee offered me an opportunity to work for them. And they said, you can just keep doing what you're doing and write up a job description. So did that for a couple of years. And we had some other programs that I think were pretty successful as we led into the 96 games in Atlanta, created some programs with some other people that really targeted increasing the medal count for the U.S. through adding additional support to athletes, coaches, and national governing bodies. And then I was told that I had a good mind for private equity, and I didn't even know what that was. So I started asking around and talked to one person, one of the individuals who was very accomplished in the field, a fellow by the name of Warren Hellman out in San Francisco. And after a long series of compliments, I finally realized he's not going to hire me. Um, and there must be a reason. So I ended up applying to Harvard Business School, and I was fortunate enough to get in. And after graduating wanted to get back into sports, but I thought the place to get into sports that had the most significant relationship to where money was being made was in television. I was offered a job at Turner Broadcasting, working their sports strategy area. I did that for a year, and I was thinking about moving into sports after having that experience, but then they offered for me to stay, and I expanded my, my purview at Turner by moving into technology and then other areas. And I am running the strategic planning group for about four or five years, and then I left that to go work at the U.S. Olympic Committee. So I did that for four or five years or so. And in the meantime, I'd had two daughters. I'd been, you know, I'd gotten married. And my wife has family in Saratoga Springs. And so that once my girls uh, left to go, they were both in college. Uh, we moved here and we love it in Saratoga Springs. So that's my story. <laughs> that's a lot. That was awesome. No, that was so good. That was awesome. I have questions. So. Okay. <laughs> I feel like... It's really cool when you were younger and you were making decisions of, I'm going to go for this. You know, I want to try to make the Olympics. I'm going to go for this. I'm going to do this. Obviously, now it was a little while ago and you made certain decisions that led you, you know, down the path you went down. But when you were deciding to not go to college for a few years or to go to New Zealand to train or any sort of those decisions that sort of I'd say, like, significantly altered your path. How do you feel like you made those decisions? Were you just, yes, this is what I'm going to do? Or do you feel like you went back and forth on things? Did you have, like, advisors? Did you talk to your family? I had my coach, this fellow, Bill Endicott. I talked to him a lot, and I suppose he was the one that helped put framework around striving for goals. And I was really caught up in the idea of becoming a world champion. When Whitewater Sloan was taken out of the Olympic program, I no longer thought of necessarily going to the Olympic Games. I just wanted to be one of the best in the world. Mm -hmm. And I thought, you know, I was training around these men and women that were world champs, and I wanted to be one of them. I mm -hmm. thought they were really cool, and I thought, that's a good way to spend your life. I when I was 15, 16, 17, <laughs> I said, this is worthwhile. And looking at other people that had, were you know, supposedly adults, I thought <laughs> that these people that were doing sport had a better life. And it was a better decision that they had made to do that. And, you know, there's that old adage, you can spend your youth trying to attain wealth, and you'll just spend your wealth trying to reattain your youth. And so tap into it now while you can. And it seemed pretty obvious to me that I wasn't going to get this time back, that I was advancing really quickly. And one of the things I did see was that many people, when they hit collegiate age, were, you know, they were going to these 
good schools, and their movement up the ranks slowed dramatically. And I was looking at the top Europeans, the Austrians, there was a Brit, uh, some of these guys. And I looked at, and my coach was doing case studies, so I really studied these people. Mm-hmm. They weren't going to college. And in East Germany, they really was, they were stopping their studies at, you know, in their traditional area, besides moving into vocational areas, at age 15, 16. And so I didn't see myself as a better athlete than these people. That's, that would be the only way that I could go to a good school, because I wanted to go to a good school and continued to make the right, you know, level of movement up the sport. And when, so I made the, the slalom team when I was 17. And I remember how the older guys looked at me. I was a potential standard bearer for a future generation, mm-hmm. if that makes any sense. And when, so when the older guys look at you that way, you realize this is not something that most people get. I'm mm-hmm. really, really lucky. Mm-hmm. I'm fast. And for whatever reason, maybe it's the right genetics or physiotype, or I just had the right coach and I'm in the right environment, whatever it is, I should take advantage of this because I'm very unlikely to have this sort of experience elsewhere. If I go to college, maybe I'll be an accountant. And, you know, it's, that <laughs> just doesn't seem to be equal to this. And I can do that later on. Yeah. Maybe I'll be four or five years behind the curve, but that's okay. You just have one shot through this. And the cool stuff requires taking risks. And so I don't know if I intentionally did it, but I kind of did. As I, as I look back, I would put myself in positions where I didn't have any other options. And so my back was up against the wall. So my parents were very upset with me when they found out. I mean, this is, you have to remember, this is now in the 80s. But I didn't take it, my SATs or anything. And I didn't apply to any colleges. And they found out that you know, I, I was now graduating high school. And I had no plans nor any intentions of going to college with my older brother at MIT. They were, I mean, appalled is one way to put it. Or, you know, upset, probably upset with themselves for not being on top of me. But it was kind of intentional. Yeah. I didn't want to eat, you know, because... I probably could have gone to University of Maryland or something, and you know, and that would have been fine. And when I switched sports, I realized, okay, I have a chance to make the Olympic team in the sport of sprint. And if I do make the Olympic team, then there's more money in that, so I can keep doing this sports stuff, and it's pretty cool. And those flatwater guys are pretty cool, also. They're not just you know the white it was not just the whitewater slalom guys. They seemed like uh, people that were worth emulating mm-hmm. you know, to me as a young guy. Maybe yeah. it's just because they were really strong and good-looking <laughs> guys or something. I don't know what it was, but. They seemed like they were living lives that were uh, um, were pretty interesting. Yeah. So, again, I moved up pretty quickly, and I think some people would say it was because I just had some natural talent and so forth. I do think there's a lot of it having to do with I didn't have any other alternatives. Yeah. And so there's a lot of fear driving my work ethic. And I think I came to the, the training environment a lot more geared up with a lot more intensity and preparation than most people. And it was because I didn't have any other options. And I was really aware of the fact that I could go back to work in construction. I I didn't see a lot of hope for me elsewhere. And this Olympic world, I also did know that if I could make an Olympic team, it would open up a lot of other doors. Yeah. I mean, for legitimate or reasons that were maybe less than uh, legitimate in terms of having it be a stamp of the value of the worth I can bring to an environment. But I was going to take it either which way. Yeah. In some respects, society I thought was pretty brutal in how it dealt with me after high school, making me work construction. Yeah. So I just saw that's the way it worked. And uh, as I reflect back upon it, I, I do think that there is something to be said for putting yourself in a position where you don't have any other options other than to succeed. Yeah. yeah. No, I mean, I totally agree because I think that 
Like right now, my type A brain wants to have a plan for the day after the Olympics. Like I have a desire to know that I could go right into some job or go to school mm-hmm. or whatever, like have something else lined up, right? Because that makes it less scary. Yeah. But in actuality, to like perform as I would like to perform and to put everything in, like there it needs to be, there is no the next day. And I, that's sort of like the same thing. Your back's up against the wall because then you have no choice but to, yeah. no, but to do it. It's hard to tell some people that because they may take it the wrong way, which is – so you, there is a point at which you now need to think completely. <laughs> it backs up against the wall in a different way, like yeah. in a larger picture with society. But as you're approaching your athletic dream – I remember hearing something about Paul McCartney talking about why they did the Beatles did so well. He said, well, we were in Hamburg and we had no other options. <laughs> we had to. We were thinking it through all the time how to how to make better songs. And so, uh, he said essentially his back was up against the wall. You don't think of the Beatles that way. Right? Okay. Not that, to compare myself in any quite <laughs> this way, but there's the idea. I think that's a common thing for all of us. Is that if you put if you're in that sort of situation by hook or crook, you know, you'll figure it out yeah. because you, essentially you're trying to survive. How do you feel like the wins and losses affected you or? how you kind of worked your way through that. Obviously, it's amazing to have won an Olympic gold medal, and then you go, you know, then you go to Harvard and you're rowing, and then you decide to go back to the Olympics and, you know, to come forth. And I think that the perspective that you gave of, uh, you know, the team that I trained with and the the guys that I trained with, like, ended up winning and, and that you played a part in that, I totally agree, but I'm sure... In the moment, it didn't feel that way, right? Oh, like that's that's something you probably gain perspective over time. Yeah, so I'm really hesitant to tell you this because you're <laughs> in the middle of it right now. Really. So yeah, after coming fourth in two events in the 80, in the '92 games and losing out on the single spot in '88, those are devastating things for me. Devastating, and I remember specifically. You know, you have those scarring moments where you can remember almost each second sitting in the tent after the fourth place in singles with a towel over my head. I couldn't believe I'd come forth just sort of sobbing. I was just like, this is like my dream was yeah. not a con- It was just like it's almost cruel, fourth place. Yeah. But upon reflection, yes, um, you realize that I really am hesitant to tell you this. Um, <laughs> yeah, that doesn't matter. And you know this. I just don't want you to think about it. So up to the <laughs> moment, I used to think that, it's a philosophy that has to stick with you until that moment, well, until a day or two after you cross the finish line. That is the most important thing in the entire world. The truth is, afterwards, it doesn't matter at all because it was, you know, it, it, your character, if you did that, everything that you could do to meet, reach your maximum potential, then you have developed great depth to your character. And to who you, who you are, you know who you are. This people talk about these journeys to find out who you are. Well, you just went on one hell of a journey to find out who you are, and nobody really can tell you who you are the way you know who you are. That's pretty powerful. That sticks with you your entire life. Yeah, yeah. That process that got you to where you are, so that you're in the hunt. You're in the hunt now, Christy. I think it's one of the most exciting things in the world where you are right now. You can look forward to the 2024 games, and you're in the hunt for. The title. That's really exciting. <laughs> and to me, as I reflect back upon it, the thing I'm most proud of is in the singles in 1992, 
I was favored to win. And uh, so paddling around with the other eight boys in the final, trying not to look at each other. You don't look at anything. You <laughs> kind of do, glances, and you know you've you know, got 10 minutes to the start. you got yeah. eight minutes to the start. You see the clock winding down. And, you know, how it ends up is how it ends up. And the fact that it was a photo finish with five of us is, you know, just kind of, well, that figures. Um, and I can give all kinds of excuses as to why it didn't happen. But it, I didn't blow up. I had no. a good race. And my friend won. Uh, and I believe, you know, I was friends with all the other guys in the race. We all respect one another. So to me, the journey was almost over at that point. I remember pinching myself at that stage and go, wow, this, is, this really worked out. Yeah. That was what my dream was that. I think I sh my dream should have been a little extended, probably another few more minutes. <laughs> to um, So I think I probably thought through up to the start line more than I did the, um, through the course of the finish. So I didn't have a perfect race. Yeah. So. It is, it is kind of crazy. Like when I was in high school, I don't know, I would think when I'd get nervous, oh, well, it's not like I'm racing at the Olympics. Like I would think that all the time, high school and college and even elite rowing. And um, then. We're literally driving to the Olympic final, and I just had this moment of like, yeah. oh, no. <laughs> yeah. Now it's happening, but in an oh, no, but also a oh, my God. Yeah. Like, because you're right. You still feel like the person that you've always been and, you know, whatever, either in a positive or negative way. And I think that was a really cool experience for me. And has been cool to to reflect on really I mean not anybody obviously there are genetics and things have to work out in your favor and all this stuff but I always thought that people that like won Olympic gold medals were just special people like on a different pedestal you know when I was younger and it's not that's not really true no so but it's good for young people to think that to give them impetus to to work hard, to work incredibly hard. Yeah. You know, so you don't want to destroy that. <laughs> no, for young no. people necessarily. For the, you know, as people get older, yeah, it's it's it's. I mean, it takes a lot of hard work, but I think that it's important to know that you can choose to do the work. Without a doubt. So it's interesting, your idea when you did realize this was the Olympic final you were in. It worked out well for you, so you were able to push through the stress that that can bring, the realization. We used to think that we would have to try to tell ourselves, this is just another race. So we'd be in the Olympic, you know, you'd be in the semifinals or the finals, and you're trying to tell yourself, this is just like a time trial, or this yeah. is just like a big race at Nottingham or something like that. I suspect that the way you're approaching it is better. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. Last year in, in 2022, we were at the World Championships, and we have a new high-performance director. His name is Yossi. I was racing in the double, and it was right before the semi, and he said something along the lines of, you know, feeling ready to go. And I was like, yep, just like every day, you know, just another, like what you just said, right? Just right. another day. And he, like, stopped me and was like, no, it's not just another day. Like, you have to finish in the, you know, in the semis, you have to get top three to make the final. Making the top final or making the final is important. Like, Oh, this is not important. another day. And we had ended up having like a crazy race in the semi had to sprint from behind and made the final. But like, I also think I was an appropriate point of my athletic career to hear something like that because it didn't really freak me out. It was more like, no, he's right. This is not just another day. I can't just go out there and think, 
Like, I have to bring my A game. You know, not that I wasn't going to, but I do think it was a good, a good coach giving a good coaching moment. <laughs> well, we would sometimes, when I was in New Zealand, train with these guys. And now that's the process of training and the understanding of how you build up a base and you do the, I don't know if they call it lactic acid tolerance work. I don't know what they call it now, but that's all common knowledge in all sports. But it, it was new back then, and knowing what to eat. Like, we didn't, you know, what are you supposed to eat beforehand? You know, it was the, the previous generation was into steak dinners and all that kind of stuff. And so the knowledge was being refined, and sports psychology was a new piece of that equation. That You guys have it, you have it better sorted out than we did, for sure. And the way you can tell that that's true is a little embarrassing, just because we like to think our generation had it together. But we would always invariably in a finals have somebody blow up. So if you were... Greg Barton used to always say, if you make the finals, you can be sure you'll at least be top eight because somebody's going to blow up. And it's because somebody's going to try to perform better than their potential and she'll be halfway through the race and all of a sudden lane four is going out the back door. And it's because he thought he was going to win, even though you know he probably should have been happy with a fourth or fifth place, but he thought he was going to win, did a flyer and couldn't hold it and realized that the 250, the Russian was pulling past him and he was done. So he says, screw it. I'm not, you know, I'm, I, I, I have nothing in here. And he'd blow up. And it happened all the time. And that doesn't happen anymore, that sort of thing. And it's because of the sports psychology, the planning for racing and so forth is much more sophisticated. Yeah. So. Sometimes people still do that. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm sure. I mean, it's, it's human nature to do that sort of thing. Yeah. I think you also, you, you find yourself in the finals. And if you don't have the right sort of coaching support and others that can get, help you get in your head and to deal with that, yeah. then it is sort of human nature to say, I'm going to go for it. Because people always say that to you, go for it, go for the gold. Well, you know, if you're lucky to make the finals and, you, you know, phenomenal performance would be third or fourth, maybe you shouldn't go for the gold. You should try to, you know, put down a really good race and be very happy coming in third or fourth. Mm -hmm. And you should celebrate that. Yeah. Yeah. My mantra going into it was just race up to your full potential and you should be, you'll do just fine. Yeah. And I was a pretty high-strung guy, so, I, you know, <laughs> I was pretty keen to, to go at it. Yeah. <laughs> I also can be quite high strung. And I'm just curious, like, I think that a lot of things that make people very successful athletes, then I'm curious about the like transition into quote unquote, like the rest of your life. And if you feel like you used the same sort of motivations and like framework and guidance into jobs and careers and stuff like that, or if you felt like you needed to sort of mellow out a little bit. Well, both. You have fun and you enjoy it. So you should enjoy where you are right now and yeah. you should enjoy afterwards. And the fact that you've been part of this amazing group striving for, you know, higher standards within this sport is something that matters, I think. Maybe it doesn't matter, but it really, I think it does. <laughs> if it doesn't, I hope nothing, it matters. Nothing, nothing matters. You know, maybe winning the Nobel Prize in chemistry doesn't really matter. You know, who knows what matters? I think what you're doing matters. So enjoy it and appreciate the fact that you're in all of this, and it's by virtue of what you've done and the hard work. But transitioning, your character is now pretty well established, and your work ethic. I think rowers are some of the most desirable workers that there are out there, and there's not. It's not surprising that rowers do so well. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Is there anything else that you wanted to talk about? Do you have any questions for me? Uh, how do you feel? Are you excited? I'm really excited. <laughs> um, I am, yeah. I feel like it's very exciting to have a singular pursuit 
uh, about something. And I feel very lucky that I've gotten to, you know, continue to like chase this dream and get to do it with other people. And it is like about a medal and about that. But I think it's really cool to be trying to go the fastest that anyone has ever gone like in this event. Like that's what we're trying to do, be go faster than anyone has ever gone and be the best person in the world on a singular day. And that's just like such a cool thing. It like incredibly that's cool. And you're so pushing cool. the bounds of what yeah. the human body is capable of doing what our species can do. Yeah. So. That's yeah. How cool is that? Yeah. And I think it's like that's what's so cool to me. And yes, it's cool to like represent your country and all of that stuff, but I think the it's the other part of it is cooler to me. And the fact that I get to do that is oh. just, and like that I get to push myself in the process. And yeah, so. Well, you're part of the lore now. You're part of the Olympic <laughs> lore. That's exciting. Yeah. And you, well, you're still in the middle of it. So there's still another chapter to be written. At yes, least. yes. I think oh. that's the other cool thing, like to know that it's still happening and, you know, who knows what's going to happen. But like, I don't have all the control, but I do have a certain amount of control. And that just feels feels cool you know yeah well, thank you so much no it was fun. so fun it well, was i was so, fun. so excited to meet you i mean it's great to meet you as well <laughs> um i was i told my wife after you guys got, got your bronze medal i watched it was hard to get the results and you're right so the the coverage it was be, it was better oddly enough when we had just three tv channels <laughs> you would never have thought that right that's it for this week's episode. I hope that everyone really liked listening to my conversation with Norman. He's so cool. I really appreciated him coming in and sharing so much. I feel like I could have just listened to him talk and listened to his stories for way longer than I did. So I, I just am really grateful to him for coming on. And my quote of the week is again from this book that I'm reading, which is called Gold in the Water. And honestly, it's probably, I'm probably going to have quotes from it for a little while. It's taking me longer to read than normally books do, but that's okay. So this quote is actually from the coach of this Olympic team, whose name was like Joachims. His last name was Jochums. I don't know how you say it. J-O-C-H-U-M-S. And so he's basically speaking to like the, his group of Olympic hopefuls. And he says, if you come here every single day between now and Olympic trials, if you make no excuses and allow no bad days, you will have done everything possible to make the Olympic team. That's our goal. If you begin this journey, but don't meet those requirements, you're someday going to be my age and you're going to be at a cocktail party. You'll be having a good time until you suddenly hear yourself telling people how good you could have been. Yeah. Take those leaps. Try things you might not want to try. Okay, thanks for listening. See you next week. Bye. I'd love to hear from you. So send us a topic suggestion, or if you'd like to submit a question for our Ask Christy Anything segment, head to our website, theother3years.com. 